to the book of Luke, chapter 12. It's on page 1031. We have no uh, children's church this morning, so our children, kindergarten to second grade, can stay and study God's Word with us. Luke, chapter 12, verses 22 to 31. It's on page 1031 in the Pew Bible. Well, last Sunday we finished a 10-month sermon series through the book of Revelation. And next Sunday we're going to start a new sermon series in the Old Testament. Uh, will also be a lengthy sermon series. Uh, just warning you ahead of time, but what else is new? But this Sunday I, I wanted to just kind of take a breather from the sermon series and address an issue, uh, a topic that my guess uh, is weighs heavily on many of us here, uh, a topic that, that's significant, that causes people um, some distress. It's, it's a topic that has been filling the news, has been fueling the talk radio, has been flooding many people's hearts with anxiety and concern and worry. Uh, I, I want to think with you a little bit this morning about our current uh, economic recession as a country. And, and how we relate to that as Christians. You know, like I said, it's in the news. I mean, just this week we saw the latest unemployment figures ticked up a tenth of a percent, uh, 9.6% now. And, of course, you know that the unemployment measures the number of people who are out of work and who are looking for work. It doesn't count people who are out of work but have kind of just thrown up their hands and, and given up. Uh, so, actually, the number unemployed is larger. And in some sectors of the economy, it's even larger than that. Uh, there are far too many uh, defaults on mortgages and short sales and foreclosures. Perhaps you know people who've gone through those kinds of situations or are contemplating those situations. Uh, we, we look at the states around the country, and many, not every state, but many states are operating way in the red, uh, whether it's debts or deficits, uh, you, you know, huge sort of um, unfunded liabilities to pension plans and and you just wonder, where, where are states going to get the money to, to make up these growing debts and these, and these annual deficits? You know, what, will it come from the federal government? But you look at the federal government, boy, we're in trouble there too. This big, uh, huge debt for our country and annual deficits that keep adding to that debt. And under the last administration and the current administration, there have been hundreds of billions of dollars sort of pumped into the country under bailouts and stimulus auspices, and yet many people kind of scratch their heads and say, well, how has that really helped? Many people wonder about that. And, and so the, I, th- I think, you know, when it comes to the economy, there's just a lot of people from all different political persuasions who just say, this is a problem. And it's not just kind of a, 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 pol- a, a problem at a, at a sort of national headline level. This is a personal issue. Uh, my guess is everybody here probably knows somebody who's out of work, has been out of work, looking for work, um, maybe it has a job but is underemployed, you know, just is not quite making what they need to make. M- maybe somebody who's, uh, to keep their job, had to take a 25% cut in pay or whatever. I mean, it's just difficult times. Well, I'm not an economist, and so I, I would uh, get out of my depth very quickly if I were to keep talking about s- sort of what the remedies were or speculating on that. But, but the question I really want to ask this morning is, what does it look like for us to be faithful to Christ in times like this? I've entitled this sermon, Following Jesus in a Recession. What, what, is it, what does it mean for us uniquely as those who call ourselves disciples of Jesus 
How do we respond and what's our reaction to and our approach to times when we're uncertain about where you know, our provision is going to come from? When there's, when there's lots of people running around ah, you know, wondering what's going to happen to our country. Where is all this heading? And so I want to look with you at a teaching of Jesus that he gave his disciples really on this topic of um, worry about uh, finances and provision and daily life basics and provisions here in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 31, uh, 34. Let me read the passage and then we'll uh, pull it apart. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Then Jesus says to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will He clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus gives an extended teaching on the disciples' attitude toward basic provisions, finances, food, drink, that whole sort of complex of our material needs and the way we provide for them. And he has a lot of things to say in verses 22 to 34, but but if I could kind of sort of sum it up, it seems to fall under two major sort of headings. The passage seems to break into two sort of pieces. The first is in verses 22 to 30, where Jesus tells us how not to respond to concerns about material provisions. There's sort of a a do not part of it. And then lots of arguments and reasons underneath that. And then verses 31 to 34 is more of a instead do this part of the message. So so let's just look at what Jesus says. How do we follow Jesus in a recession? Well, there's things we shouldn't do and then there's what we should do. So let's look at what we shouldn't do first. It's in verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, and about your body, what you will wear. Don't be full of anxiety, stress, and apprehension, just worrying about where these things are going to come from, where the resources, uh, how the resources will get there. And remember, Jesus was speaking to people who had reason to worry. In Jesus' day, uh, people were pretty much subsistence, agrarian kind of people for whom the question, where's the food going to come from, was a very real 
live kind of question. There's a reason Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us our, this day our daily bread. Because that was a question for them. In fact, most of human history, people have got up in the morning saying, how are we going to, you know, what are we going to eat today? We don't know. Most of human history has not had stop and shop. You know, with massive buildings with aisles and aisles of food at, relatively speaking, very inexpensive prices where we could just go in and buy what we needed and come out. Uh, so, so Jesus was speaking to people who, who had the, the uncertainty of basic provisions. But whether we live back then or whether we live today, the first command is very basic. Do not worry. Christians should be marked by a sense of centeredness and peace and, and lack of anxiety about concerns over such matters. You say, well, uh, whew, how, how do I get there? You know, how does one become not worried in, in this kind of economic climate? Well, Jesus goes on to give by what by my, my count is about five reasons not to worry. He sort of ticks them off uh, one by one here, like a string of pearls, one argument after another. And so let's just look at them quickly. Argument number one, the first reason not to worry that he gives us is because life's about a lot more than food, clothing, and material basics. Look at verse 23. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. You know, we know this as Christians. We know that life is about more than food and drink. It's, it's about following Christ and glorifying God and, and proclaiming the gospel and honoring God in whatever we do, whether we're in plenty or in want. We know that life is about more than this. And yet, so many times it's easy just to think that, that money and finances and provision are the, what it's all about. And Jesus is like, why are you focusing on that? That's not what life is about. I mean, that's part of life. It's a need. But life is about something so much greater. That was the point of the, uh, the passage right before our passage. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus addressed this issue of the point of life related to finances. Look at chapter 12, verse 13. Somebody in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I'll tell you, inheritances and siblings, that can be a real nightmare. <laughs> verse 14, Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Here we go. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life's not about possessions. That's not the purpose and meaning of it. And then he goes on to tell the famous parable. Then he, uh, verse 16, he told him a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Life is about being in relationship to God and, and serving Him and walking with Him. And that's true. It, it's not about wealth. Whether it's having lots of money or having no money, the point is the money issue is not the purpose of life. That's just one of the details that sustains life. But God says it's really about me. Last, it was funny, last uh, week as I was writing this sermon, I got an email from a member of our church 
who was telling me the story of uh, uh, just the weekend before, he was with his family at some sort of family event. And he, it's one of these situations where he's one of the few Christians in the family kind of situation. I know that many of you can relate to that. But anyway, he was, uh, he was talking to his aunt, who's 98 years old, fabulously wealthy, uh, and just near the end of her life and completely miserable. And has, you know, was telling, you know, sort of moaning to him about how she bought the 55-foot yacht and had all these problems with it. So she upgraded to the 65-foot yacht, which also had problems. So finally they had the custom 80-foot yacht built. And, and she says, but they sold it at a loss because, you know, quote, unquote, it did not please me anymore, she says. So, you know, it's like near the end of your life. And, and he was reflecting on this in the email to me. He's like, she's the poster child of living the dream longevity and plenty of money to enjoy it and health and you know being of sharp mind to be able to enjoy it all those years and yet so miserable so of course he's like well i want to tell you about the peace and the happiness and the meaning i found in my jesus and before he could even go further she was just you know brushing him off like you're jesus you know and she ridiculed him for his faith and so he just, you know, was just expressing this in email. And he said, I could tell you the story. And I just thought, you know, how, he said how, you know, clear it was that she was eating a fool's banquet. And here it's, it's so meaningless and hopeless. That's not what life is about. And to think that God had sent her at age 98 another ambassador. Another chance had walked through her door. Another messenger from Christ. And before he could even talk, she was just, you know, I don't want to hear that. Jesus stuff. How many chances does God give us to find out the true meaning of life? And so that's the first reason not to worry, because that's not what life's about anyway. We should know this as Christians, but we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Second reason not to worry, back to chapter 12, verse 24, is because God will provide for us. Look what he says here. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. In the uh, kind of movie of my mind, I, I always kind of frame things as a movie. It's the you know result of seeing far too many movies as a kid. I, I, I sort of you know am, am sort of directing this scene. And in my own movie, I see Jesus outdoors teaching it, and there's a tree nearby with a bunch of ravens in it. You know, wow, wow, while he's trying to preach, and they're skulking away. And I just imagine him turning it into an illustration and saying, "Hey, look at those ravens. Look at them." They don't have a barn, they don't sow, they, they don't have a storehouse, and yet God takes care of them. And, you know, think of ravens. Uh, you know, pop quiz. In, in Jewish, Jewish kosher food law, are ravens unclean or are they clean? Are they kosher or not? It's an unclean bird. Can't be kosher and eat a raven. So Jesus is like, hey, look at the dirty birds, you know? <laughs> Those are unclean birds. God takes care of them. Think about that. You know, God, God provides for His creation. Look, are we Christians or are we deists? You know, there's a difference between those two. Deists believe that God created the world. There is a God. He created the laws of nature. But after sort of creating the world and setting it in motion, He really isn't involved in it. So practically speaking, day to day, it's just up to us and our wits and our hard work and you know, luck. Uh, but, but the world just kind of goes on, but God's not involved in it. In, in that worldview, that deistic way of looking at God's relationship to the world is not biblical. It's not Christian. That in the Christian worldview, 
You know, God is very intimately involved in sustaining it and upholding it. I mean, in the Christian worldview, the fact that I'm breathing right now is because God is graciously sustaining my life and giving me breath. Um, You don't have to turn there, but let me just read to you. I was reflecting on this psalm, Psalm 104. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And then get this, he says, they all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. You know, God has created this amazing ecosystem of, of the world and He provides for all things here and His hand is at work in it. You know, are, are you freaking out about the economy? Look, turn off the radio for a little while. Stop watching Fox News for a little bit. Okay? And just go for a walk. And walk around. Look at trees. Look at the clouds. Think about the the, the whole uh, moisture system that keeps the planet watered that God made. It's, it's genius. Think about, you know, look at bugs. Find some bugs and follow them around. You know, you're going to look a little strange, but just follow bugs around and think about the, the whole food chain and the, the ecosystem that God has created and how He provides for bugs, He provides for birds. It, it's amazing. And it's like you're made in the image of God. And if you're a Christian, you're being remade in the image of God. How much more will God take care of his, those who are His image bearers? So Jesus says, look, God will provide. So don't worry. You're not going to go starving. God's going to take care of you. And then number three reason. So first reason is life's about more than material possessions and provisions. Number two, God will provide. He feeds the ravens. Number three, why worry? Because it doesn't do anything. Worrying is the most useless, unproductive activity. Look what he says in verse 25. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? So we move from God's great omnipotence in His power to uphold and feed creation to our impotence to do anything by worrying. Worrying is utterly useless. As what he says here, you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying. It doesn't accomplish anything. You can't adjust your life by worrying. Ultimately, God has your life in His hands. The length of your life, the day of your birth, the day when God calls you uh, at death, that is determined by God. Your death day is not determined. It's not in the hands of an oncologist or a surgeon or a radiologist. It's not in the hands of a career planner or a headhunter, you know. It's in God's hands. He's the one who determines us. So why worry? Worrying doesn't do anything except stress us out and make us tired and make us, you know, exhausted the next morning. Do you ever wake up at 3 in the morning worrying about something? I, I did last night. Five hours before the sermon, I woke up worrying about something. You know what you should do? Pray. Prayer accomplishes something. Worrying is completely useless. But if you just find yourself worrying... If you have a habit of worrying, then pray. You know, three in the morning, put on some clothes, go for a walk. And, you know, you may get picked up by the police or questioned, I don't know, but <laughs> what are you doing? I'm praying. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah but just pray. Pray about it until, until you're just exhausted and you fall back asleep, trusting in God. Uh, but, but we need to be people who pray. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We, we need to be people who trust God rather than, than worry about these things. And, and it can be a battle. It's not just like you stop worrying. Sometimes you have to keep fighting against it through prayer and through faith. Fourth reason not to worry in the face of financial uncertainty and our economy and all that stuff is kind of similar to the second reason. Instead of the ravens, now it's the lilies, right? Verse 27, consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? So he goes from the dirty birdies to just grass. Look how God clothes the grass. Have you ever seen a field in the wilderness full of wildflowers in the spring? Breathtakingly beautiful. That's how God clothes grass. Grass is the humblest and lowliest of all plants. You know, just boring old grass. And God clothes it with flowers. He'll take care of us too. And then I love that little line at the end. Oh, you of little faith. That's the zinger. Yeah, that's the problem. I have little faith. You know, I need more faith in God. The, the, The antidote to fear is faith. It's to keep coming back to focusing on who God is, His sovereignty, His control. And usually when I'm filled up with fear, it's because I've lost sight of God's power and His sovereignty over my life. So I need to keep coming back to that and fighting the, the daily battle against fear by not being a person of little faith. We're worried about the cash flow. God's worried about your faith flow. And how strong is your faith flow? That's what really matters. Um, God will provide. We need to trust Him. Now, you know, just a few caveats here. Does that therefore mean that we should not try to work hard at all and we should just sit at home and wait for the check to come in the mail? Yeah, of course not. God, God provides as we actively seek Him. Uh, does God sometimes uh, provide just enough to get us through that day without solving all our problems? Yes. Does God sometimes wait to provide until the very last second? Yes. <laughs> Does God give us what we need according to His definition of what we need, not necessarily according to our definition of what we need? Yes, yes. But still, He provides, and we have to trust Him. Uh, and He calls us to trust Him in these circumstances. So don't worry. Life's about more than food. God takes care of the ravens. Worrying is completely useless in terms of accomplishing anything. Uh, God takes care of the flowers, O you of little faith. And then here's the final one. God's your Father. He already knows what you need. Here's the fifth one. Uh, Verse 29. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. I find that phrase very helpful. Don't set your heart on it. Isn't that a helpful phrase for getting kind of at the nub of the issue? It's like, where is my, my heart is set on something. What is it set on? What it, what's burning inside of me and churning me and driving me? And where, where does my mind keep going back to? What is it that, that's filling me up? What's my heart set on? So don't set your heart on material things, whether you're wealthy and well-off and doing great or poor and struggling. That's not what life is about. We need to set our hearts on Christ and on the glory of God. 
Because if we set our hearts on food and drink, he says, you're just like the pagans. That's what the pagan world runs after. And so if we're going to stand out for Jesus in a recession, it's got to be as people who have an otherworldly kind of peace about us, even when everyone else is like, ah, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know. We have to say, you know, I'm not worried. You know, my, my, my father is going to bail me out. You know, he, he's loaded. Really? Your father is going to bail you out. You know, what, what do you mean by loaded? You're like, like Mitt Romney kind of rich? You know, like, oh, pff, Mitt Romney. My father's got way more than that, you know. Like Bill Gates kind of rich? Oh, pff, Bill Gates. You know, my father's got way more than that. If you don't mind me asking, who's your father? You know, well, <laughs> you know, that's my father. God provides for me. And, and so our peace and our trust in God is what should differentiate us from the world. Not that we don't have struggles and worries and doubts, but that we, we find faith that, that overcomes them as we trust in God. And that's the key word there. The pagan world runs after such things, but your Father knows that you need them. And this is the wonderful element of Jesus' teaching that, that, that really stood in contrast, even to, to a lot of the Old Testament teaching, is that Jesus would talk about God as Father. And for us as Christians, He's our Father. You know, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the wonderful benefits of salvation is that you're adopted into the royal family. God pulls us off the, the streets of sin. We're no longer urchin, street urchins of sin. We're cleaned through the blood of Christ and we're adopted into the royal family. And so when we're not just talking about God here as some kind of distant, benevolent uh, uh, dictator, this is our Father. He knows what we need. And so we trust Him as Christians because we've been adopted into His family and He's now Dad. And we can trust that He knows exactly what we need and when we need it, even if sometimes it seems like His timing is off or whatever, but we can trust Him. I was uh, thinking about a story. I've always loved this story. It's a story about Charles uh, Spurgeon, who was, maybe you know of Spurgeon, he was a great preacher in the 19th century in London. Uh, God used him to bless Thousands of people with the Word of God is just a great preacher, and his, his works are still read and appreciated today. But anyway, Spurgeon had a tough life, especially in his later years. He had a lot of pain, a lot of illnesses. He had gout. You know, and these are the days before Advil liquid gels and Percocet and Oxycontin and all these wonderful drugs that make pain go away. You know, they didn't have that. And so he just was struggled with pain with, with his gout. And he tells the story, he told the story in one of his sermons of a time where he went through a very acute uh, period of of pain from gout where he was just racked with pain and this is how he dealt with it he says once when i was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that i can no longer bear it without crying out so you just imagine this man just lying in his bed yelling because he's in such pain he says i asked all to go from the room so he just kicked everybody out of his, his bedroom get out leave me alone And so he was just alone with God. And then he he says, Then I had nothing I could say to God but this. And this was his prayer. Thou art my father, and I am thy child. And thou, as a father, art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou hide thy face from me, my father? Wilt thou still lay a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? Spurgeon said, so I pleaded, and I ventured to say when I was quiet, 
And they came back in who watched me. And as all the people came back in the bedroom, he said to them, I shall never have such great pain again from this moment, for God has heard my prayer. He says, and I bless God that ease came and the racking pain never returned. Did God heal Spurgeon's gout? No. God gave him what he needed in the moment to sustain him and provide for him. God doesn't always wave the magic wand and take away the problems of our life. Often people become Christians and they find the intensity of life increases. But God is a good Father and He will provide what we need in the moment. But even more than that, He has in view our faith being purified and the character of Christ being refined in us so that we can glorify Him, not as people who have sort of been airlifted out of our problems, but as people who've gone through our problems and come out the other side and say, God is faithful. He took me through. He's given me what I needed. And so sometimes God's provision is not an elimination of struggles, but a preservation in the midst of them and a sustenance so that our character can glorify Him more and more. What worry do you need to leave at God's feet this morning? What is it that you have been freaking out about in your own private world that it is time for you to put at the feet of Christ and stop worrying about it? Maybe it is money. Maybe it's health. Maybe there's a relational crisis in your life you don't know what to do with. Maybe you're just going back to school and you're kind of scared or nervous, something new. Whatever it is, we need to honor God by trusting Him and continually laying our fears at His feet because He's our loving Father. And then once we've done that, we need to move on just quickly here to the other major command here in this passage in verses 31 to 34. Here's the second half. It's sort of the tail end of it. He tells us something we should do. So stop doing something. Stop worrying. And then verse 31, do something else. Replace the worry with another thing. And the other thing we're supposed to do is to seek His kingdom. Look at verse 31. But instead, seek His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. All these things you're worried about, God will take care of you. Seek His kingdom. So it's not enough to say, stop worrying. Trust God. He then goes on to say, and seek His kingdom. Make that the thing that churns within you and excites you and drives you and pushes you forward every day. Whereas worry used to do it, now it's something else. Now what does it mean to seek God's kingdom? What is that? Well, God's kingdom is the experience of living underneath God's rule and God's authority. So I'm, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom when God is my king, kind of put it simply. And therefore, I honor Him. My life is about praising Him and loving Him. I trust Him. I obey Him. I seek to walk in His ways. And so the kingdom of God isn't necessarily a place as it is sort of a sphere of existence in which we live or don't live. Either we live in the kingdom of the world or in the kingdom of God. Either we're the king of our own little petty lives or God is our king. It's one or the other. And so he says, seek the kingdom of God. And it's so great because once you start seeking God's kingdom... Just your whole vision changes for your life. You know, instead of saying, what am I going to do to pay these bills? What am I going to do? How am I going to provide here? I don't know what I'm going to do. We start saying, you know, this is tough circumstance, but I wonder, how am I going to glorify God in this situation? How's God going to gain glory for Himself? 
I wonder if this will give me some opportunities to finally talk to somebody about the Lord, you know, who's been nervous or, or, or afraid themselves, and I can tell them where my faith is. You know, how, how can I honor God through this situation? Just the whole vision shifts. And we trust God for those things, but we're now concerned for His kingdom. And, and then I love what he says here in verse 32. This even gets better. Do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So you get that? Verse 31, seek the kingdom, because if you seek it, you're going to get it. It's amazing. It's like the only sure thing in the world. <laughs> we seek all these other things, and we don't know if we're going to get them. We expend our lives looking for happiness, and we don't find it. But here's the one thing, the best thing, the kingdom of God, and he says, if you seek it, you'll get it. It's already been given to you. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, it says in the Scriptures, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you seek the Lord, you will find the Lord. If you want to enter the kingdom of God and you call upon Christ, you will enter the kingdom of God. It's wonderful. So, so here's the, the best thing we could ever seek, and it's the one thing that's guaranteed to those who seek it and those who really repent and turn to Christ in faith. He says, don't be afraid. God's given you the kingdom. The Father's already given to you. The Father has deeded it to you. The Son has signed the deed in His blood. And the Holy Spirit has sealed it. And now it's yours. It's been signed, sealed, and pretty soon will be delivered. We're just waiting for that part. It's awesome. So seek the kingdom of God. What do you worry about? God has already given you everything that you need in Christ. And then notice then, verse 33 and 34, notice the practical results that this different mindset has on our behavior. Okay, so now we're getting back to our, our practical response. What does it look like to follow Jesus in a recession? Well, here's what it looks like. One is that we're, we're calm, we're at peace, we're not filled with anxiety like the world around us. And instead, this is where it gets really radical. Look what it says in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Isn't that radical? It's like, you know, what do you do when everyone's worried about not having enough? Christians sell and give. What? That is just totally backwards. Sell and give. No, no, it's get and hold on to. You know, you don't sell and give. But notice the logic. If my kingdom shifts from this world to the kingdom of God, and my, my vision shifts to the kingdom of God, and I know that God will provide for me, and I know His kingdom is mine, well then, yeah, you know, what do you need? Take it. I'm all set. You know, my Father's loaded, and He's given it all to me in Christ, and given it all to us in Christ. It's amazing. And so there's this kind of radical freedom that we have as Christians to give our lives away even when we don't have much. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. I was thinking about that verse, sell your possessions, give to the poor. And I, you know, I had this thought, what if, what if we took that just kind of literally as a church? You know, we're, we're so quick to kind of spiritualize that and say, well, you know, it's, it's talking spiritually about you know, giving yourself away to Jesus or something. But what if, we, what if we took it literally? Like, what if we as a church said, okay, month of September, we're all going to go home, find two or three things in our house, 
Not junk in the attic that you don't care about, but like something you really like. And what if we all just tried to sell it? You know, Craigslist it, eBay it, whatever. And then we brought all the money together at the end of September and we just gave it to the poor. What if we all said, okay, here's the pile of money that we all made from selling something. Let's just send it to Haiti. Or let's give it to a local charity. Or maybe we'll give some of it to the deacon fund in our church, which is a benevolence fund we have in our congregation for helping the poor. I mean, what if we we did that? What if we practiced selling something and giving it to the poor? My point is, what what in our life is going to change as a result of really trusting God and seeking His kingdom first? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it is time. Maybe you're out of work and you have time, whereas you didn't have time before. Um, You know... Take a day a week, instead of job hunting on that day, give it to God. You know, serve in a charity, or if you know someone in church who needs some help with something, help them out, or, you know, whatever. I mean, be creative. You, you, I'm sure you all seen the construction out back. Um, one of the stories that maybe you don't know is that as we were getting the, the funding and the permits and all this for the construction, we had to get a loan from a bank. And there was a member of our church who was out of work for about a year, and this person basically donated time, you know, because they had an expertise in finance to help do all the paperwork to get the loan. And this person was putting in, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week at some point, just serving God and saying, hey, I'm going to give a little of something while I'm out of work and I have time and just sort of gave that to the Lord. I mean, it's really amazing. And we would not have be where we are today if people weren't doing things like that. So whatever it is that you have, there's a freedom you have once you seek God's kingdom and know that God will take care of you, to just give your life away and pour it out. And when we're like that, when we have this kind of lifestyle and mindset, we will begin to embody the gospel. Because isn't that what Christ did in the gospel? He who was infinitely wealthy, Jesus Christ, all riches, all glory, all honor, all holiness, that God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man, Jesus Christ. He laid aside His glory. He laid aside His honor and His his riches. And He walked among us to save us, to, to bail us out. It was the ultimate spiritual bailout. Because we were spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually bankrupt. Actually, it's worse than that. Because spiritually bankrupt means you're, you're at zero, right? We, we're in debt. We're in the negative with God. We owe God such a debt of honor and praise and obedience that we could never pay back in a million lifetimes. And Jesus invested everything He had and poured it out to save people who deserve to be thrown in debtor's prison for eternity in hell. And He went to the cross, and on the cross, He took the punishment that our negative debt deserves. So He kind of, on the cross, paid our our. Uh, our consequence and sort of brought us to zero. But then he also gave us his righteousness so that he now made us wealthy. So I think sometimes we think about Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins, which he did, but we forget the other side of that. He also gave us his righteousness. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So in God's eyes, we're, we're wealthy in Christ, morally and spiritually speaking. So God is... Jesus has done the ultimate bailout of us from our sins. He's done it at personal sacrifice and loss because He trusted the Father to glorify Him in the end. And so when we live this way, we become living pictures of the generosity 
of Christ and the gospel. Do you have Christ? Have you embraced Him as your Savior? We're talking about laying things down at the feet of Jesus. It starts by just laying ourselves down at the feet of Jesus and saying, Christ, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Let's pray.